Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Presented by Pastano. On today's show, we're talking the Rams to Los Angeles. The NFL owners tonight approved the return of the Los Angeles Rams to the market. And Brian sits down with the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, John Wartime. The whole drill is sort of strange, but the way it played out where I don't think even a week ago people would have said St. Louis is going to be the first team that gets into the, uh, the gated neighborhood of L.A., I don't think a lot of people would necessarily saw this coming. Now, with Sports Business Radio, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Happy New Year. It's our first show of 2016. We're happy to be powered by our friends at Pistano. Follow them online at Pistano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. Busy show for you this week. John Wartime, who is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, He's a best-selling author. He has a new book out, February 2nd. It's called This Is Your Brain on Sports, The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from the T-Shirt Canon. It's a great book, fun read, lots of really interesting nuggets. We'll discuss that with John on the show this week. I'll also talk to him about the NFL's move to Los Angeles. That's the big story this week. Also on the show, Matt Mitten. He is the president of the Sports Lawyers Association, Mitten represented Harris County, Texas, when the Houston Oilers moved to Tennessee. He'll shed some really good light for us on all of the legal issues around Los Angeles, Oakland, San Diego, St. Louis. Lots of moving parts here. We'll discuss them with Matt Mitten on our show as well. I'm joined on the show by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I am great, and uh, what a, a fun story. And uh, I was just thinking about, you know, we, I moved into a new house, I don't know, six months ago, and I was like, oh, that was terrible. I can't imagine moving an NFL team. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, think about this. We're, you know, two weeks into 2016. This may be the number one sports business story of the year. It's going to be. I don't know t- how anything else will beat it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's huge. It is huge. It is a multi billion dollar story, as we discussed on our year end show. This was coming, and. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is that, you know, I kind of saw this coming. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But after an absence in the L.A. market dating back to 1995 when the Rams and Raiders left town, the NFL returned to Los Angeles this week. Here was NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell earlier this week making the official announcement and explaining what this all means for the Rams the Raiders, the Chargers, and the NFL. Uh, it's been a long process, a long day, so I apologize. Um, I appreciate everyone's patience uh, in allowing our process to play out. Uh, the NFL owners tonight uh, approved the return of the Los Angeles Rams to the market, uh, starting with the 2016 season. Um, in 2019, they will uh, be opening in a new stadium, which uh, we are all, as ownership, uh, very excited about uh, the kind of facility that's going to be built that we believe uh, 
will be uh, extraordinarily uh, successful in the Los Angeles market. It's more than just a stadium. It's a project, an entertainment complex uh, that uh, we believe will be responsive to the kind of things we need to be successful with our fans in the Los Angeles market. Uh, this agreement also allows uh, the Chargers uh, to relocate to Los Angeles as well. Uh, if they do not exercise that option, uh, the Raiders uh, would have the option also to move to Los Angeles or to move to Los Angeles with the Rams. Uh, the agreement uh, provides that we would give $100 million to both the Chargers and to uh, the Raiders to use to help build a facility. If a new stadium could get built, we would contribute that $100 million to the project in both of those markets, which would be our hope. Um, the ownership, uh, I think, personally believes that the project at Hollywood Park was a kind of signature product project that is going to help make us successful in Los Angeles for the long term. Uh, I said this morning that we've been at this for over 20 years. We felt that we needed to have the kind of uh, stadium and kind of project that had the vision, that had the facilities that would really uh, bring a new kind of fan experience to the NFL and to Los Angeles. And so we're, we're very excited about the project that stands put together. I would also say and share with you, uh, this morning I started the meeting by saying uh, that a relocation is a painful process. It's painful for the fans, for communities, for the teams, uh, for the league in general. Uh, it is Stability is something that we've uh, taken a great deal of pride in. And in some ways, a bittersweet moment because we were unsuccessful in being able to get uh, the kind of facilities that we wanted to, to get done in their home markets. Uh, so the excitement that we feel about being able to return the Rams to Los Angeles is balanced with a, a disappointment that uh, we weren't able to get it done for our fans uh, in St. Louis, uh, San Diego, and Oakland. Uh, but we'll continue to try in those markets, and we'll continue to try to address those issues. So that's Roger Goodell. Griggs, a few thoughts on this. So basically for the NFL, by trading St. Louis for L.A., which is the number two media market in the country, the NFL is going to be able to command hundreds of millions of dollars more in future TV and media rights. This is a big deal for the NFL because, you know, like if you took your house and you moved it to a nicer neighborhood, that's essentially what the NFL is doing here. No, you know, disrespect to St. Louis, but the nation's number two media market didn't have a team. And now at least the Rams will be there and the Raiders or Chargers may join. Yeah, it's a no-brainer for the NFL. I mean, it's just it's amazing to me that they've been out of the uh, market for that long. But, you know, circumstances set it up, and they couldn't do it this time. They couldn't do it that time. And all of a sudden, here we are, and uh, could potentially have uh, a big time, uh, you know, more than one team there. It's going to be crazy. So the other thought I had on this that I tweeted out this week is the Rams franchise value, I think, is going to at the very least double going from St. Louis to L.A. So you've got, you know, a $1.8 billion stadium that Stan Kroenke's going to build out of his own pocket. And he's going to build that in Inglewood on the former site of the Hollywood Park racetrack. And, you know, this is great for the NFL. It's great for, uh, you know, they may have the NFL combine there in the future. There might be a Super Bowl. We could see a future Olympic Games there in 2024. 
all kinds of this is going to be a crown jewel for the NFL, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And when you are the Rams and Stan Kroenke, you're going to double your franchise value at the very least by moving from St. Louis to Los Angeles. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think they picked a great spot, too. When we were down there for the roadshow at USC, we flew over the potential site. Right. It's now going to be the site, and it's it's just a great location. I mean, it's right there by the airport. It's by, you know, the beach is close. Everything's there. It's just like a, it's a no-brainer. It's going to be a great site. And like you said, I mean, I've already seen some tweets about Olympic Games being there, and you know everything's going to be held there now for the next, you know, five, ten years probably. Now, the other ripple effect this is going to have, and we talked to Lakers owner Jeannie Buss about this, this is going to change the landscape for the Lakers, the Clippers, the Dodgers, the Kings, even USC and UCLA. When the NFL, which is the strongest pro sports league in the United States, comes to town in the number two media market, now you're going to have to compete with them for ticket sales, for sponsor dollars, for media rights. There's a long list of ways that this will impact all of those entities I just mentioned. So they're going to have to roll up their sleeves and do a little extra work, Greg. Yeah, I think you're right, too. And and like you said, I mean, NFL is usually king, and it's something new and fresh. And we know when everything's new and fresh, everybody wants it. So sponsor dollars are going to probably more likely go to the Rams and the NFL teams in L.A. now because, hey, it's new, it's fresh, it's a brand-new stadium, you know, it's the NFL, it's the bit most viewers. So you're right, it's going to be very uh, – and, and look at the Lakers. They're at a down year right now. They've been kind of struggling for the last couple seasons. So it'll be interesting to see how the sponsorship dollars spread out. So I'll talk to John Wartime about this, but it's going to be interesting to see now what happens with the Chargers and the Raiders. So Chargers, number two in line, they've got a year basically to decide, do they want to join Stan Kroenke at his site in Hollywood Park? Do they want to be an equal partner? Do they want to be a tenant? And then if they decline or they work out a deal in San Diego, do the Raiders come in to L.A.? But Riggs, the Raiders don't have a lease deal for next season. So they, you know, they could make a deal at Oakland Coliseum, but it's a really tough spot for the Raiders and for the Chargers because they had one foot out the door of their current cities. Now they've got to go back and try and make a deal. They've got a hundred million reasons to make a deal because that's what the NFL will pay them if they stay in their own market. But. Um, you know, they both want to be in L.A., and this didn't turn out the way they thought it was going to. So it's a tough pill to swallow for not only St. Louis, who lost their NFL team, but for the owners of the Chargers and the Raiders. Now they have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, it's time to get creative. And, uh, I mean, it's <laughs> it's just crazy. It's going to be – it's there's so much developing stuff that's going to be happening every day from here on out this year especially that it's uh, it's going to be very fun to watch and follow and see how it moves forward. The last thing I'll leave everyone with is this, is I always say on this show, read the tea leaves, right? And if you go back to when the Seattle Sonics moved to Oklahoma City, when that team was purchased by Clay Bennett and a group of owners, they were all from Oklahoma City. So you knew they were going to go through the motions to try and keep the team in Seattle. But at the end of the day, they were all from Oklahoma City. What were they going to do? They were going to move the team to Oklahoma City, which they did. In this case, back in 2010, Stan Kroenke bought... All of the shares of the Rams became majority owner, which was the first clue. And then he bought this land, Hollywood Park in Inglewood. What did you think was going to happen? He wasn't going to stay in L.A. Do you think he just bought that land because he wanted to build a sandcastle on it and, 
you know, have a, a, a mud bath. I mean, he was going to turn this into his stadium, and I think he showed the greatest vision. He certainly has the deepest pockets. He's the second wealthiest owner in the NFL next to Paul Allen. So if you're the NFL and you have an owner that says, I'll foot the bill 100% on a $1.8 billion stadium, you can use it for things like the Combine. You can use it for the Super Bowl. You can use it for the Pro Bowl. You don't have to go to cold Indianapolis anymore. What do you think the owners are going to vote for? And they did by a 30 to 2 margin. Yeah, it's totally, I mean, it's a no brainer. Like I said in the beginning, it's, it's Los Angeles. It's a great location. It's a huge market and, uh, it's just, it's going to be a good fit. And I think instantly it's going to make money for, for the Rams and for the NFL. All right, coming up next, John Wartime, who is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated. He's the best-selling author who has a new book out on February 2nd. This is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, the value of rivalry, and what we can learn from the T-shirt cannon. And then later in the show, Matt Mitten, president of the Sports Lawyers Association, will join me to break down the sports legal issues around the NFL's move to Los Angeles. I'm Brian Berger. He's Brian Griggs. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. Powered by Postano. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, but also the founder and CEO of the exclusive Sports PR Summit. The Sports PR Summit is an annual event bringing together senior PR executives from the sports world, national media members, and pro athletes for a full day of panel discussion, featured conversations, and face-to-face networking in New York City. Past speakers have included ESPN reporter Jeremy Schapp, Sports Illustrated executive editor John Wartime, former NFL veterans Tiki Barber and Derek Mason, NBA senior VP of PR Mike Bass, and other top PR minds from across the sports world. The 2016 Sports PR Summit will take place on Tuesday, May 17th at the Players' Tribune, which is a new digital media platform created and curated by some of the world's top athletes and founded by former Yankees great Derek Jeter. The Sports PR Summit is an invite-only event limited to 125 attendees. If you're a senior sports PR executive and you'd like to be invited to the 2016 Sports PR Summit at the Players' Tribune in New York City, Get in touch with us via the Sports PR Summit website at sportsprsummit.com. That's sportsprsummit.com. Follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter and Instagram at Sports PR Summit and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Sports PR Summit. I hope to see you at the 2016 Sports PR Summit on May 17th at the Players Tribune in New York City. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is a good friend of the show, John Wartime. He is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated. He's also a best-selling author, and he's got a new book coming out February 2nd. This is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, the value of rivalry, and what we can learn from the t-shirt cannon. John, welcome to Sports Business Radio. Happy New Year. How are you? Hey, good. You too, Brian. How are you? Good. You've also got the uh, This Is Your Brain on Sports podcast that you do, so people can find that on iTunes. Tell us kind of the genesis behind the idea of this book. I know you've done the book Scorecasting, which you know is, again, a deeper look inside the sports world and in kind of the psychological look at sports, but tell us about This Is Your Brain on Sports and how that idea came about. Yeah, it's similar to Scorecasting, honestly, and this all comes from 
you know, I feel like we all owe, uh, you know, t- 10% of our advances to uh, Malcolm Gladwell or to Freakonomics. It's from that school of marrying sports with, with social science. And I, I guess the, the thesis of the book is basically we're all sports fans. All sorts of crazy stuff goes on during a game. Um, you know, the, the Cincinnati Bengals fourth quarter looms large. But, you know, a- every game we watch, there's all sorts of – there's a whole culture of sports that's sort of nuts, Right. And it's fans that are superstitious, and it's people that go crazy trying to grab those stupid air cannon T-shirts, and it's choking. Um, you know, again, these, these wild, this wild card weekend looms large, but there, there's a lot of crazy that goes on when we watch sports. And part of the thesis of this book is what's really going on. Let's try to explain why these sports quirks exist. And we, we like to think of sports as this, this parallel universe, and it has its own sort of set of code and culture. But really, what's going on in sports? is easily explained by basic psychology a lot of the time. So speaking of psychology, you team on the book with Tufts psychologist Sam Summers. So how did you and Sam meet, and you know what was your partnership like, your collaboration in writing this book? It was a lot like scorecasting, where it's, it's fun. I mean, part of it is just logistics, and having a, a full-time job, it's easier to partner with someone and you know basically do half the work, to be honest. But... I think with Sam, it was great. I mean, he's a huge sports fan. He had written a book that I really liked, and he seemed to have a lot of these curiosities. I mean, why, why are quarterbacks so good-looking, and why do athletes tend to have these monster games the same week they have some horrible death in the family? All these sort of quirks of sports. I, I bounced the idea off him, and he got it right away. And we just started talking about it. By the end of our conversation, we probably had two dozen ideas for, for chapters and things to explore, and it, it just it just kind of went from there. The thing I like about the book is that it not only deals with the psychology of the fan, but also the athletes themselves. So, uh, you know, I, when I was watching the Minnesota Vikings Seattle Seahawks game last weekend and the Minnesota Vikings kicker missed that 22 yard chip shot field goal, I immediately thought of your book. This is a different situation than a regular season game or even the three field goals he had kicked earlier in the game. Yeah, why is that? Why is it that a guy, I mean, I can't remember the numbers offhand, but it was literally something like 193 out of 195 prior kicks from that distance. I mean, 99 out of 100 is no exaggeration. Why is it that with a few seconds left in an NFL playoff game, that's when he shanks the ball you know, wide left? Why is that? And again, typical, we always say, oh, you, you choke in sports. And I think the first line out of, I can't remember who, who called it. I think it was Collinsworth, the first line out of his mouth was, you know, there's no preparing for that 18th hole putt at Augusta. And at the same time, I mean, at some level that's true, and choking is part of what makes sports so intriguing, but choking is something that we all do in our lives. We don't do it as dramatically as Blair Walsh did last weekend, but choking is very human, explainable human behavior. Yeah, I mean, what I've always wondered about, one of the quirks in sports is, the closer. So it seems like if you bring the closer in and you ask the closer to get anything more than three outs, it totally throws the closer's psychology off and they've got to come in in the eighth inning and the ninth inning. And, you know, we see so many closers who just can only go, you know, for three outs. They can't go in the, into the eighth inning too. So, um, you know, there's some fun we facts. We do that all the time though. I mean, that, I mean, that's, that's a great example. And, um, I mean, we do that. If somebody says to you, go run a mile on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. And you run a mile, great. If they say, you know what, I, I, I misread the directions, actually, could you run a mile and a half? <laughs> that last half mile is terrible, and our times go down, and people who do this experiment say their moods change. 
that human, that's a great example you just gave about the closer, because that's exactly what we're going for. Why, why is that? What's the difference between three outs and four outs? And there's a very sort of logical answer in human psychology, which is we really need expectations. We need deadlines. We need to be told how far to run. We need to be told how many points our portfolio is supposed to go up or go down. And when we deviate from that, right, when we run a marathon and we're actually told, you know what, you've got to run an extra 500 yards, when we're told the deadline's been extended a day, there's a dramatic drop-off in quality. And that's something that happens to me and you when we do you know, daily chores, but that's also something that happens to elite athletes like a closer. So at the end of the day, it sounds like we're creatures of habit, and if we have to variate from that habit, then that's when things could go sideways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the other point of the book is sort of these athletes are these superheroes, and they they you know run faster than we do, and they shoot more accurately, and you know they're 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 bigger and stronger. But at the end of the day, it's the same basic human psychology. It's the same decision making choices. It's the same biases. The same sort of thought exercises that you and I go through when we make a grocery list or when we try to balance our checkbook, that's playing out when Blair Walsh is lining up that field goal or Pac-Man Jones is being goaded into that penalty. Let's uh, take a look. So this is your brain on sports. It comes out February 2nd in bookstores and on Amazon. Um, So when you talk about the book, we look at like Tom Brady and other starting quarterbacks that seem to look like fashion models. Why is that? Oh, that's, that's one of the other, uh, that, was, that was another chapter. So, well, why are quarterbacks so good looking? We sort of take, take it as this article of faith, the best looking athletes in sports. I mean, go, go through the list. It's, it's Brady, it's Joe Namath, it's Montana. And we ran a study. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to play too much spoiler alert, but we, we ran a study, and uh, suffice to say there's something going on there. Qu- quarterbacks are exceptional, but in a, in a blind taste test. We did a study where we gave people just a headshot of a quarterback. And they weren't football fans. They didn't know, you know, Aaron Rodgers from Tom Brady. There was no uniform. There was no helmet. And we asked them to rate quarterbacks. Quarterbacks, you you would be surprised to see how they fared um, in the looks category. Very very mediocre, lower than wide receivers, lower than other positions. But they did come in demonstrably higher in another category. So I, I think when it comes to quarterbacks, we're confusing good looks with uh, with other qualities. The other thing that you address in the book that I thought was really interesting is the best players make the worst coaches. I remember when Magic Johnson had a short stint with the Lakers and he got so frustrated because, you know, those players just weren't playing at the same level of intensity that he played at with the player. Can you give us any kind of insight there as to why the best players make the worst coaches? There's something called the curse of the expertise. And basically it says that when you become so good, super mega elite at a skill, it almost becomes like breathing. I mean, you almost don't even process it the way you would at just even one level down. So if you're an absolute violin virtuoso and someone says, how do you play? It's so natural to you. It's like saying to me and you, how do you breathe? Like, I don't know. I just do it. It just comes. If you go one level down from that, so you're not the best violinist in the world, but you're you know, the, the third chair at the Corvallis Symphony. You're still very good, but you're not at that super, super elite. You're much better able to articulate What's going on? And we see that all the time in sports. Um, you know, Jordan was disastrous. And there are all these stories about the Washington Wizards when they all sort of wanted to gather around and hear Michael Jordan's tricks. And he basically just said, do it. Or what one example we have in the book, Bob Gibson was a pitching coach. And he would go to the mound and he would basically just say, throw strikes and grunt harder. 
But you get to that one level down where maybe it's Popovich or maybe it's a guy like Phil Jackson, you know, a Matheny, just, just sort of go through the best, Bruce Bochy, go, go through the best managers and coaches. And they have some expertise. I mean, a lot of them were former players, but they maybe weren't all-stars or Pro Bowl players, and they tend to be much more effective at communicating, much more effective at explaining mechanics. A lot of times you can be so good that it's such a natural act you have a hard time then conveying it. Yeah, look at a guy like Nick Saban who just won another national championship, and he certainly wasn't an elite football player or anything like that, but the guy can certainly coach. Urban Meyer, you know, same thing. These guys weren't elite. Even, you know, someone that comes to mind, uh, Pat Riley was a terrific collegiate player. He wasn't very good in the pros and, you know, an excellent pro coach. So I think there's a lot of credence to what you said. Uh, I want to move on for a moment and kind of tie this in to what we saw happen this week, the NFL to Los Angeles. Lots of different storylines there, but, you know, as as it relates to fans and their psychology, John, I was listening to talk radio last night, and I heard fans from St. Louis calling talk radio shows and crying, grown men crying that they're losing their NFL team. Fans are so passionate. I mean, fan is short for fanatic. Um, that's, you know, that's an interesting storyline that's taking place, but, you know, I can see how the fans in St. Louis would be crushed that they're losing their uh, NFL team. St. Louis is an interesting case. Um, I think, first of all, because they've gone through this drill already, right? I mean, Bidwell took the team, Bidwell took the team to Arizona, right. and the Rams come, and they celebrate the Rams, they won a Super Bowl with Kurt Warner, and then they're back to losing their team again. I think at, at some level, a team has become sort of this referendum on your city, and in turn almost this referendum on you, that if you, you know, if you, if you sort of looked at this coldly, you'd say, well, what's the difference? I mean, how few of you are going to the games anyway? Just, why don't you just keep rooting for the team? If there's somewhere else, turn on your TVs at the right time. Nothing's preventing you from following a team that isn't in your city. But there's such a bond and there's such a relationship between the place and the team. And it's something we talk about in the book. I mean, at some level, you know, pick a... Pick a member of Todd Gurley. You know, he's not from St. Louis. He may not even live there in the offseason. He could just, he didn't choose to play there. He was just drafted there. And yet you feel this kinship when someone goes out there with your city's name on the jersey. Right. Um, it's a really strange and intense relationship. And I, I mean, I think St. Louis is just an interesting case all around. Um, I, I this, this was sort of late to the party in terms of relocation. I think that at some level, Stan Kroenke actually being from Missouri is an interesting dynamic in this whole story. Yeah, no kidding. They were, I mean, this isn't like San Diego where you sort of, you know, you, you wish teams didn't have to move and you sympathize with the fans, but you look at this from a business perspective and say, you know, it, it kind of doesn't give you a whole lot of choice here. I mean, St. Louis actually took some pretty, I, I thought, pretty aggressive steps. Not, a, not in a flourishing economic market either to try and keep this team. And then, yeah, exactly. The season goes, and you, there, there was no great ceremony. There was a, the way there was in San Diego. You know, week 17 goes by, and then 10 days later, you find out your team's not going to play their next season. Um, it, it's, it's a really strange – I mean, the, the, the whole drill is sort of strange, but the way it played out where I, I don't think even a week ago people would have said St. Louis is going to be the first team that gets into the, uh, the gated neighborhood of L.A. I don't think a lot of people would necessarily saw this come. John Wartime is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at John underscore Wartime. He has a new book coming out February 2nd in bookstores and on Amazon.com. This is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, the value of rivalry, 
and what we can learn from the T-shirt cannon. What can we learn from the T-shirt cannon? We like free things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm giving away the whole book. Um, we will do anything if something is free. And if they sold those T-shirts for a dollar, people would walk by them in the concession stand. But the fact that we all think we're getting something for nothing, and, and there's also this sort of element of competition that not everybody gets one. But we human beings do very strange things and really abandon rational decision-making when there's no price tag as opposed to a little price tag. It's funny because when I used to work at the Blazers, you know, I'd sit at a Blazer game and they'd shoot the T-shirts or they'd throw free stuff into the stands. And I would always say to my coworkers, I'm like, someone's going to jump from the upper level to get like a pencil or, you know, to get something that is worthless, but it's free. It's amazing. It's such, when I saw that point in your book, I was like, that couldn't be more on the mark because I've seen people do crazy things for free things that, like you said, probably cost a dollar or, you know, they don't have a lot of value to them, but because it's free, they perceive it as I'm the one who, you know, won that thing in front of everyone, everyone in the audience. I'm the one who got it. I, I don't know too if there's something you, you've paid for your ticket, you paid for your parking, you know, you've been burned paying, you know, nine bucks for a beer. <laughs> so the context of a game where they may have, uh, you know, they, they, they may have gotten me in half a dozen other ways, but I'm walking out of here with a free t-shirt. I always say if you, if you'd put this on eBay, if you'd price these out, and you get a T-shirt, you don't even know if it's your size. You don't even know if it, if it fits, if you like the colors. It might have some corporate slogan on the back. Um, would, would people stop if they put that in the concourse on your way out and, and said, you know, these, these shirts are a dollar? How many people would stop? And yet you launch it during timeouts on a T-shirt cannon. And, and you're right. I mean, you, you say that jokingly, but we actually write in the book about a guy at a, at a White Sox game a few years ago who broke his back Jeez. trying to get one of those shirts. Um, it's, it's pretty remarkable, but again, this is not unique to sports, whether it's, you know, samples at, uh, Trader Joe's or whether it's coupons, pe people will go to remarkable lengths to get free stuff. Let's talk a little bit more about NFL to LA. Do you think from the NFL standpoint as a league, the move of the Rams from St. Louis to LA is a good thing? I think probably it is, but I, but I think that, I mean, I think this whole notion that, you know, the NFL tried to protect L.A. because it always was a stalking horse. You know, it was always a threat you could make. If you don't build me a new stadium, I'm going to move to L.A. I mean, I think that was fairly hollow. And people talk about TV ratings, and now it means so much to have a team in the biggest market. But it's not like people in L.A. weren't watching football. I mean, it's, it's 16 games a year where they didn't have a home team. But it wasn't like, you know, you're either a fan or you weren't, but it wasn't like there was a blackout. We're only talking about eight home dates, so it's not a huge sort of a economic imperative. I, I think in, in sort of, if you, if you look at the totality of this, it probably makes sense for the NFL to have a presence in the second largest city in the country. But, but I don't think, uh, you know, it, it certainly didn't seem as though the NFL was suffering for not having it. I, I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, I agree with you. I think, so if you look at the NFL as a business, adding the second biggest media market in the country to their portfolio certainly strengthens their business. They basically traded St. Louis, which is a mid-sized market, for the number two media market. So that's a, a big upgrade. Um, I think with media rights in the future and things of that nature, they're going to be able to command a lot more money than they would if they didn't have the number two media market. But they're already rolling in the money. So like, what's the, the big difference anyways? Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to me to see if you have two teams there, especially, can you sell 120,000 
season tickets? Can you sell the sponsorships that you need to? LA is a competitive city with the Dodgers and, you know, the Lakers and the Clippers and USC and UCLA. And I think NFL returning to LA really changes the landscape of Los Angeles. I went to Loyola Marymount, so I know LA pretty well. And I just think it's going to really change the landscape down there. I think the other teams are going to have to really roll up their sleeves and do a lot more work than they've had to do previously because they've got some stiff competition now. I remember going to the proposed stadium maybe five years ago at the City of Industry. There was a you know, local billionaire, Ed Roski, who's going to build a stadium. Right. And first of all, I mean, it, it took me probably an hour and a half to get there from Santa Monica, even though it may only have been 20 miles. And I talked to people around L.A., and they said, oh, I don't even know where that is. We would never go there. I wonder if saying L.A. has X million people might not be so accurate. I, I get the feeling you sort of have your neighborhood there, maybe in a way you don't in, in other sprawling cities. But does, does how, how far are fans willing to go to get to whether it's Carson or whether it's Inglewood or whether it's a city of industry? I, I wonder realistically how far fans are willing to go and deal with traffic to actually get I think Inglewood was the site, right? So, you know, I was just down there recently and I saw the site and Hollywood Park is a much better site than Carson. So you're closer to the airport, you're closer to the beaches, you're closer to the freeway. Um, You know, people are used to back in the day going to Lakers games at the Forum in Inglewood. So, you know, that area to me is much more centrally located for all the reasons I just listed than Carson, which is more in the industrial area. Um, so I think they chose the ro- the right site. You know, it's funny, John, if you read the tea leaves like I know you and I do, I look back like when the owners of the Thunder bought the Seattle Sonics and the entire ownership group right, was from right. Oklahoma City. And you kind of went, well, gosh, they're going to make it look like they're going to try and keep the team in Seattle. But at the end of the day, they really bought this team to move it to Oklahoma City. Well, that's exactly what happened. When I saw that, A, Cronky bought the rest of the shares for the Rams in right. 2010, and then he bought this huge site, Hollywood Park in Inglewood. If that didn't tip you off as to what his plans were, and you know he's a pretty persuasive guy, he's got deep, deep, deep pockets, the second wealthiest owner in the NFL to Paul Allen. So you know he's got some serious resources here. I just thought, you know, like I know some people are surprised by this. I thought all along that this is how it was going to work out, that the Rams would be the first one in, it would be in Inglewood, and that it would be Cronky who would be the guy kind of holding the keys in Los Angeles. He did, I, I did a long piece on him maybe four or five years ago, I think four years ago for Sports Illustrated, and I came away from that thinking he was sold on Europe. And I, I went to an Arsenal game with him in London it was um, that the same weekend the Rams played the Patriots at the O2. Hmm. Um, so I sort of went on a, on a Saturday. I went to a Premier League game on a Sunday. I went with him to the uh, to the NFL game, and he he didn't say, he didn't say anything to that. But I but I was thinking I came away from that trip thinking this guy is going to be the first person to put an NFL team in London. Um, he has a residence in LA. Again, I mean LA it's it's an attractive market. There are a hundred reasons why the NFL should be there. But um, but don't forget that this this guy is from. Missouri. He's very active at the University of Missouri. I, I think it probably stings him that his reputation in his home state is suffering right now. It, it, it's really sort of an interesting story. And I, I wonder, I mean, I, I saw my colleague Grant Walls already sort of speculating about this. I mean, I wonder what this means for some of his other sports interests. He now has, he now has a Premier League team in London. 
he's got you know an, an NHL team and an NBA team in Denver, right? And now he's bringing an NFL team to, to LA. Well, his son runs the show in Denver, from what I understand. So in the Nuggets, yeah. yeah, and in the Avalanche. So you know he's paying attention to that, but his son is really the one running those. I've gotten the feeling all along, and you probably know better than I do that. You know, this was kind of his crown jewel. He wanted to be the one to get the NFL back to Los Angeles. And, you know, if you look at the Raiders and the Chargers right now, they're in a real tough position because the Raiders, they don't even have a lease agreement at the Coliseum for next year. So what are they going to do? They're truly without a home. And, you know, I think this leaves them in a really tough spot because if you're the Oakland Coliseum, you know that they need a place to play. Right. Like you're not going to give them any kind of a deal. And it doesn't seem like that's a long-term solution for them because they haven't gotten anything done. You know, I tend to think if anything's going to get done here at the last second, it's going to be San Diego. A, because Spanos and Kroenke do not like each other, do not want to be business partners at all. But Spanos may have no other choice than to be a partner with Kroenke because if he can't get a deal done in San Diego, where's he going to play? It's just, I mean, I, I was overseas for week 17, but, you know, I'd, I'd seen the NFL games, and it really seemed to be the conventional wisdom that San Diego was going to be first. And there was the tearful goodbye at the Chargers' last home game, and everybody likes exactly what you said about, uh, you know, Spanos, a sort of longtime NFL family. If you'd asked people 10 days ago, I, I suspect they would say if there were going to be an announcement the second week of January, we were going to have news on news on San Diego. So, yeah, it, it's, it's strange. I mean, St. Louis still has... A petition on the table. I mean, I don't think it's beyond the realm of reason that St. Louis might get another team, ironically enough. Yeah, wouldn't that be interesting if the Raiders or the Chargers wound up in St. Louis? I, you know, I was hearing this morning that even San Antonio is being discussed as a potential market for the Raiders if they don't have a venue in Oakland. I mean, they've got to play somewhere next year. And, you know, if you're the NFL, you've got to help find a place for them to play, don't you? Yeah, I mean, the, the other place where, I mean, the NFL, when you go back and look, it's just such a great business model. And for all sorts of reasons, you know, the, the players don't have lengthy careers. I mean, there, there are all sorts of reasons, but one of them, the scarcity of product really changes the math in a way that certainly baseball, but even basketball and hockey can't do. And we're only talking about eight games. We're, we're talking about a league that uh, attended to the grand scheme of things is fairly negligible, but we're also, we're only talking about eight dates. So could San Antonio have a baseball team? Probably not. Is it possible for, for San Antonio, I mean, even Louisville, Kentucky, and then you say, well, wait, we're, we're only talking about eight games. Not unreasonable. So I, I think our franchise relocation is, is not over with, and I think that the NFL has a lot more leverage here than other sports because of the scarcity of product. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you know the tough thing about the NFL is – you know, it's over a billion dollars to get into the game now, right? So, you know, if you want to just buy a team, forget about having to build a stadium or do anything else, you've got to have, oh, it, you sure. know. I mean, yeah, exactly. So, like, you know, I live in Portland, as you know, and a lot of people are, hey, Phil Knight, maybe he'll buy a team, or Paul Allen, or, well, Paul Allen already owns a team. Like, you know, you've got to be super, super wealthy to be able to afford a team. And I wonder, you know, is there anyone in a market like San Antonio or Louisville that has that kind of money that would put another billion up probably to build a stadium. I mean, it is not an inexpensive proposition, but you're exactly right. Once you get into the club, it's dummy proof. I mean, you know, as I've always said on Sports Business Radio, NFL owners make enough money just from the media rights to pay their team payroll. 
So like you can't lose money unless you're just the dumbest guy in the history of the world because you're making so much money from media rights and from other revenue sources that, uh, you know, like you said, not guaranteed contracts, short careers. It adds up for a, a terrific business model. But, you know, unless you or I win uh, Powerball this week, we, we can't get in the game as an owner. Yeah, I mean, Stan, Stan Kroenke's already paid more in a relocation fee yeah. than, you know, the, the owners of the Atlanta Hawks paid for this, paid for the franchise. So it, it's, um, no, it's, I, I think these, these next 90 days, I mean, I, ironically enough, this is sort of the big, the big NFL story this week. Um, you know, Peyton Manning might have the last game of his career, and we, we had craziness with the wild card games last weekend. But, you know, this, this, this is the big NFL news, and it has nothing to do with, with head injuries or anything on the field. Yeah, I think that's actually a good thing for the NFL. So you're on your way to Australia for the Australian Open. You know, I saw Serena was the 2015 SI Sports Person of the Year. Can she come anywhere close to duplicating what she did last year? I mean, that was just incredible. It's all about health and fitness. Um, t- tennis needs, you know, you, we, we have uh, injury reports for, we make our fantasy lineups. We need it for tennis, too. If she's, if she's fully healthy, she could replicate last year. And if her knee is as bad as we're hearing it is, she may not post you know, in, in Melbourne next week. Um, wow. at, full, at full health, though, she's, she could do what she did last year. Put her year into perspective. Greatest year ever for a female tennis player and maybe even a female athlete? I'd certainly put it up there. I mean, you know, Steph, Steffi Graf had a crazy year in 1988 when she not only won all four majors, but even won the Olympic gold medal. But at a time when we keep hearing tennis has never been more physical, when you're traveling all over the globe, there are different surfaces. You know, there are all sorts of different, different types of players you're going to meet. Serena came two matches away from winning the Grand Slam. You know, sort of tennis's triple crown. Um, it, it was a tremendous year. The fact that she was, you know, in her mid-30s when it happened made it more remarkable. And I, I feel like people have finally gotten her. I mean, I feel like for, for a good 10, 15 years of her career, everybody sort of kind of knew that she won, but people confused her with Venus or they didn't know what to make of her. There were some unpleasant... Uh, off-court incident, people remember, uh, you know, her, her threatening a woman. And I feel like last year, apart from all the winning, it, it kind of all came together. And the, the casual sports fan, you know, the people in my office who may not follow tennis closely, finally realized that this was a once-in-a-generation athlete we were watching. All right. This is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, the value of rivalry, and what we can learn from the T-shirt cannon on sale February 2nd in bookstores and on Amazon.com. You can also find the This Is Your Brain on Sports podcast on iTunes. It's terrific. John is on Twitter at John underscore wartime. That is W-E-R-T-H-E-I-M. When and where are you going to be signing? Do you know uh, when you're doing some book signings? I'm going right from the Australian Open to the Super Bowl. So uh, I've got a bunch of media stuff that week, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Well, John, thanks for making time to join us on Sports Business Radio. Congrats on another best-selling book and uh, look forward to seeing the success of the book and uh, have fun on your travels. You've got a good uh, sports calendar coming up the next month or so. I missed my own bed, but no, thanks. Thanks, Brian. Always, uh, always good talking. Pleasure being on the show. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger, powered by Postano. More of the show coming up. I know what you did last 
Hi, it's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pistano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pistano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pistano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pistano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Matt Mitten. He is the president of the Sports Lawyers Association. He is a sports legal expert. He actually represented Harris County, Texas, when the Houston Oilers moved to Tennessee. And he joins me now on Sports Business Radio to discuss the NFL's move to Los Angeles this week. Matt, thanks for taking the time to join me. Uh, my pleasure, Brian. So, so many different storylines and angles from the legal standpoint around this. But in general, when a team relocates, again, you were part of the Houston Oilers moving to Tennessee and that whole uh, relocation process. If you're the St. Louis Rams, who will soon be the Los Angeles Rams, what are your first steps in this move from St. Louis to Los Angeles? Well, legally, there isn't really much they can do, assuming that the Rams would not be breaching their existing lease in leaving. Um, what distinguishes perhaps the Rams leaving from the Oilers, the Oilers wanted to leave two years before their lease expired. So there was some litigation that resulted as to whether or not um, they could be legally required to stay there through the duration of their lease. So that's, you know, one significant factor. But if um, the, the Rams would not be breaching their existing lease agreement, they would be pretty much free to go now that they've gotten uh, the required three-quarters uh, approval from NFL club owners. What do you do with sponsorship agreements, media rights agreements, a lot of agreements in place in St. Louis? How do you break those on your way to Los Angeles? Well, I, I would be surprised if those agreements did not have a clause in there that would basically uh, void the agreement, uh, the agreement would expire, or the Rams could pay a, an agreed-upon um, amount of money if the club were to relocate. Because this is something that I'm sure the Rams had been looking at for many years. Uh, presumably, they looked very carefully at all of their contractual obligations, not only those with the uh, stadium, but sponsors, any local media contracts, and were trying to make sure that um, they could leave and again, they would probably try to resolve it by an agreed up front uh, payment. What about season ticket holders and people who have PSLs? Is there language usually in those agreements that if a team were to relocate, that those contracts are also null and void? 
Um, yeah, they would, you know, presumably have a clause in there that would provide that, you know, the personal seat license, um, you know, likely was paid up front and that would provide the, the right to purchase uh, season tickets annually through a particular period. And it typically would be tied to uh, the duration that, you know, the club knew it was going to be playing its games in the existing stadium. Sports Lawyers Association President Matt Mitten is my guest. So I look at the Oakland Raiders, who also are trying to get to Los Angeles along with the San Diego Chargers. The Oakland Raiders, Matt, they don't have a lease agreement beyond this year. So they're a team without a home. They're, you know, I guess going to try and make a deal with Oakland Coliseum. There's been discussions that maybe they go to San Antonio. If you're the Oakland Raiders and you don't have a stadium lease agreement, what's your next step? Well, um, they're, they're going to have to work out some agreement to continue playing in Oakland till uh, the NFL has approved them relocating somewhere else. And I, and I wouldn't think it would be very difficult if the lease expires uh, because the people in Oakland and the Oakland Coliseum would like to have them stay, you know, because that's the only chance that they have to keep the club there. Otherwise, they're going to look for a more favorable stadium deal um, somewhere else. But, you know, the Raiders can't go anywhere uh, until they've gotten the requisite approval from NFL club owners. And my understanding is that if the um, Chargers don't reach an agreement with the Rams owner regarding sharing the facility in Inglewood, then the Raiders get a shot at um, doing that. If you were advising the Chargers or the Raiders, you know, it seems like the deal on the table, we know the Rams are going to go to Inglewood and Stan Kroenke is going to build stadium on the Hollywood Park land. But if you had the opportunity to either be an equal partner or a tenant of the building, which would you choose? Which would you advise your client to do? Well, you would want to be you know, an equal partner would all depend, you know, the devil's in the details, of course. The, the, the key thing is that, you know, a club that's going to, you know, share that stadium is they're going to want to try to maximize their locally generated revenues and, um, you know, at least, you know, have the facilities um, be in a condition and have at least as favorable dates as the Rams. Um, so, you know, I would prefer to have a 50-50 deal because one of the things that you don't want to do is put yourself at a competitive disadvantage with the, you know, club that you're going to be sharing the Los Angeles market with. So there's a whole host of things um, that you would want to look at. And generally, locally generated revenues, there's a pretty significant portion of those that the club gets to keep. And that provides the cash flow in order to pay out, um, you know, these signing bonuses uh, to attract, you know, free agent players, and those get prorated over uh, the duration of the player's contract for purposes of the salary cap. So locally generated revenues are very important to NFL clubs. Sports Lawyers Association President Matt Mitten is my guest. We're talking about the legal angles in the move of the Rams to Los Angeles if you look at the NFL as a league, is there anything 
that the Raiders or the Chargers can do to take action to get where they ultimately want to get without that 24 owner vote that they need to move? Or are they stuck without that vote? Well, the, you know, both the the Chargers and the Raiders as a member of the club, they agree to comply with, you know, the league constitution and rules, which pretty clearly provide there's got to be a three quarters approval in order to relocate. And the NFL has, you know, a pretty clearly defined list of criteria that get considered and whether that occurs. Um, you know, what we saw in the past, I guess the first time when the Raiders back in the 80s wanted to move down to Los Angeles and they didn't get the requisite approval from NFL club owners, they brought a what was a successful antitrust suit. Um, you know, that's a possibility today, but I think it's kind of, um, you know, unlikely uh, because things have changed. I mean, um, well, let, let's assume, for example, that the Chargers reach an agreement. Uh, well, actually, the Chargers and the Rams, once they go back to Los Angeles, they're effectively in the same market, even though it's 120 miles or so away. That's largely a shared market. And, you know, the argument, if it's the Raiders, if, if they want to bring out the antitrust sword, uh, would have to, uh, convince a court that it's unreasonable for the NFL uh, not to want to place a third team in the law, what's effectively the Los Angeles market, um, particularly when it would mean the Raiders leaving the San Francisco Bay market, which they now share. So I think, you know, that's a possibility, but I think um, that would be a difficult suit for um, you know, the Raiders to, uh, to win. And, and the Chargers, they do have the opportunity to move up uh, closer to the, you know, actually closer to Los Angeles if they can work out a deal um, with the owner of the Rams. Yeah, it's interesting, Matt, because a lot of fans remember the Colts moving in the dark of the night from Baltimore to Indianapolis, the Browns moving in the dark of the night from Cleveland to Baltimore, and then the example you just cited of the Raiders moving from uh, Oakland to Los Angeles back in the day. So I think some fans look at that and go, well, I guess if an owner just wants to bring the moving vans and, and move the team and then, you know, ask the league or the owners to stop them from doing that, you know, maybe sometimes by doing that and taking that, that strong action, I'm wondering if that gives the team an advantage in uh, any kind of a fight against the NFL trying to block them from moving? Well, I don't think so. I mean, you know, the, 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 both the, Brown, the, the Browns left with the permission of the NFL, or not the Browns, what, you know, became the Ravens. They left with the permission of it when the, um, I guess the Baltimore Colts went to Indianapolis. Um, I, I think they had league approval. Uh, they just went under stealth of night because they didn't want the fans and city officials to do it and for them to, you know, try to take any effort to prevent that from occurring. But, you know, the league holds all the power. You know, they can prevent a move from occurring because there is a contractual obligation for the club to play where they've agreed to play. And, again, about the only um, remedy that we've seen was, you know, the Raiders' successful antitrust suit but I think we'd have a really difficult, different situation here when, you know, the Raiders were trying to say, hey, there ought to be three teams 
uh, in LA, uh, this market here, when there has really been only the chargers um, down there. So, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that the golden rule applies here. The, the, the league clubs collectively um, have the gold because they make the rules. Matt, what happens to the cities left behind? So we know St. Louis and the Edward Jones Dome is going to be empty. There's not going to be NFL football there anymore. The Oakland Coliseum may not have NFL football. And the same thing with the stadium where the Chargers have played. What happens to those venues? I mean, I think of Olympic venues that basically turn into ghost towns when the Olympics are done. And I'm wondering, what happens to those venues in those cities? Is there any kind of legal recourse or... Do they just become ghost towns as well? Well, again, there, there's not really any legal legal recourse that the the city, you know, owner of the sports facility would have against the league club, the league or the club that leaves if they've complied with their contractual um, obligations. Uh, you know, it's very unfortunate for the fans; they lose a team because, again. You know, the Rams aren't leaving because they weren't profitable. They weren't, um, you know, supported and indeed probably even loved by a significant segment of the St. Louis market. They're just looking to go to a much larger market, brand new stadium, believing that, you know, hey, we can be more profitable and we'll have even more fans. And you know, one of the things that I think is particularly important, which which didn't happen down in Houston, is, um, you know, going back to the mid-90s when Bud Adams, when he owned the Oilers, said, look, I've got to have a brand new dome stadium um, or I'm going to relocate to Nashville. Um, and, of course, the government officials said, no, we can't afford to do that. And what had happened was 10 years before Adams had threatened to move the team to Jacksonville unless there were significant improvements made to the uh, to the Astrodome. And it wasn't just the Oilers, but it was also uh, the baseball club, the Astros, the Houston Livestock and Rodeo Show that was there. But the county uh, funded $70 million plus worth of um, improvements to the Dome, but w- which they were, um, were going to be uh, funded by by bonds that wouldn't be paid off for 30 years. But the Oilers were only, it was only a 10-year lease. So one of the big problems there is there was still about, I think it was $67 million of bond indebtedness, but no club to play there. So the most important thing for cities that host uh, major league professional sports franchises is to anticipate all of these things and make sure that there are contractual provisions in there that adequately protect uh, the local community's interests. Because usually there's a significant amount of public subsidization of these playing facilities. So let's end on that. If you're St. Louis, you know, and I'm sure you haven't read the contract. I certainly haven't read the contract, but... Do you think there were any provisions in there saying that, you know, if we still have bonds to pay off on the Edwards Jones Dome, that uh, there's some coverage there? Or are they exposed there? And now the city of St. Louis is going to end up paying for a venue that won't host an NFL team. Well, you know, they, they, they could be. It, it, it all depends. Um, you know, usually it's the 
club that has the most significant bargaining power. Because when, when the Rams moved uh, from Los Angeles 21 years ago, um, basically they said to St. Louis, you want us? Here's what we're going to have to have. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some outstanding, um, you know, bond indebtedness, some other things, because the club typically has the leverage. There are um, more cities that want to host an NFL uh, club than than there are, you know, there's 32 available franchises. And what had happened is there had always been an attractive market open, and that provided very significant leverage to a club to go to the, you know, current host community and say, look, when our lease expires, we're going to consider leaving unless you um, provide substantial public funds to improve this facility or even, you know, build a new one. And, you know, that was one of, you know, what led to this game of uh, musical chairs back in the 90s. We had the Colts and the Browns and the Oilers um, leaving. You know, St. Louis is a fairly large market um, that might provide some um, interest to some other NFL club that's perhaps in a smaller market and their stadium is aging and might not be able to, you know, St. Louis might say, hey, look, Come here, we'll build you a new stadium, renovate this one. Um, You know, that's one of the um, issues that occurs because NFL football is so popular and there are, you know, more cities that have the requisite population and economic base to, um, you know, host an NFL team. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on Sports Business Radio. I look forward to having you on again in the future. You can follow the Sports Lawyers Association online at sportslaw.org. You can follow them on Twitter at Sports Lawyers. Matt, thanks again for taking the time to lend some insight from the legal end of things with all of this moving from uh, various cities, in this case St. Louis to Los Angeles. It's, it's very insightful, so thank you. Glad to do it, Brian, and I look forward to uh, talking with you again soon. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more powered by Postano. SBR will be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. This is Sports Business Radio. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks to our guest, John Wartime, the executive editor of Sports Illustrated. 
best-selling author. He has a new book out February 2nd. This is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, the value of rivalry, and what we can learn from the t-shirt cannon. It's a great read. You can find it in bookstores and on Amazon.com. Go get it today. Matt Mitten, the president of the Sports Lawyers Association. Great insight from him. You can find the Sports Lawyers Association on Twitter at Sports Lawyers. want to thank Brian Griggs, our executive producer, for all of his great contributions and making our show sound great. Josh Blank and Doug Zanger as well. Thanks to our friends at Pistano for powering Sports Business Radio. Follow them online at Pistano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast anytime. Just go to iTunes. Type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 100 business news podcasts. You can also find us on Audio Boom or the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps. Follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. Our Twitter feed was just named to the top 50 sports business must follows on Twitter for 2015. That's two years in a row we've been on that list. Very proud of that. And uh, when we're not on the air with you, we are happy to share sports business nuggets with you on Twitter. So follow us on Twitter at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hello, my name is Sophia Berger. I want to tell you about the Pixie Project. The Pixie Project matches pets to the right people. The Pixie Project takes pride in finding matches for both people and animals. The Pixie Project also offers low-cost veterinary assistance. My family worked with the Pixie Project to adopt our lovable puppy, Scotty. He's a great addition to our family. So if you get a dog or cat, kitten or puppy, you should go to the Pixie Project. To learn more about the Pixie Project, visit them at www.pixieproject.org.